Even if you live in a community where parking is not hard to find, sometimes your tenant pool is moving out of a place where parking is very hard to find, like New York or San Francisco. So even if you can tell them, hey, street parking is no issue, they might have a little bit of an issue having buy-in with that or grasp of like really believing that. And so I think having at least one not at least one, just having one dedicated parking space is what you need because typically they will come in with a car, they want that. I don't think you need two. I think if you have two, you should use the other one to rent out to someone else. <laughs> but if you have one, definitely offer that. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Aaron Spradlin. Today, we are talking about the revolution that is coming to the United States right now in terms of remote work and what you as a real estate investor can do to capitalize on the folks that are moving out of some of the bigger cities on the coasts, moving inland, moving to less expensive, more enjoyable markets, how you can make a fantastic return on addressing their needs in terms of medium-term furnished rentals. I know multiple people personally who have achieved financial independence through hustling and making an awesome return on their furnished medium-term rentals. It is absolutely possible. It's doable. It's been done by others. And if you've got hustle and drive, you could do it too. This change and, and shift to remote work is going to create a lot of opportunity for, and is currently creating a lot of opportunity for real estate investors. And you could be one of them that capitalize on, capitalizes on it, replaces your income through medium-term furnished rentals, and uh, you could do very well. Like I said, our guest is Erin Spradlin. She is a broker in Denver and Colorado Springs, Colorado. And she runs a group called Denver Women Invest for female real estate investors in the Denver and Colorado area. She is a an in, she is an investor friendly uh, real estate broker in Colorado Springs and Denver. So something to take note of if you want to invest in that area. And she recently released a book called American Nomad on this shift, this historic shift to remote work and shift away from the old ways of working in the office, living in, say, Silicon Valley. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people exiting those areas. And like I said before, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for real estate investors to capitalize on that and replace their incomes by providing medium-term furnished rentals. If you're new to the show and not yet subscribed, take a second, go to your favorite podcatching app, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button, and that way you will get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and you will be able to join us and sharpen your real estate investing and passive wealth generation skills and meet your goals. If you are a an Apple user and you enjoy the show, please take a quick second, go to the Apple Podcasts app, give us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind. That really helps us out. It helps us get higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem rankings. It helps other people learn about the show. It's a great way. If you are enjoying the show, it's a great free way to give back. I certainly appreciate it. I see everything you guys have to say on those reviews. I read every single one of them and I appreciate it so, so much. If you're new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love learning new things. Like I said before, I do know a few people who have replaced their corporate income gotten rid of their day job through medium-term furnished rental investing. And I think this remote work trend 
is going to create a ton of opportunity for real estate investors who are there to capitalize on it. And you could be one of them by listening to this interview today. Without any further ado, here we go with Aaron Spradlin. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Hey, I'm happy to talk with you. We've already been talking for a half an hour here, and we gotta, we're going to let all our time go by without hitting the record button. So <laughs> had to get on that. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us a bit about what you do, your specialization, all that great stuff? Sure. Thank you for the question. So I'm a real estate agent in Denver and Colorado Springs, but I work kind of 50-50 with people just doing, you know, primary or selling, but then the other 50% are investors. And the way my husband and business partner and myself got into this is that we had a lot of Airbnb investments ourselves. And we thought that other people might be interested in investing in Airbnb. And this was 2015, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but the laws and stuff were significantly different here in Colorado around Airbnb investing at that time, it was basically a free-for-all. So we've kind of made our business around legal Airbnb investments. So looking at what cities allow for it, because it's a city-to-city level. And then in the last year or two, we've also sort of moved into medium-term investments, which would be 30-plus, 30-day-plus furnished rentals. So sometimes people burn out on Airbnb or the city laws change. So just another kind of market and opportunity for that which has done well as we see the emergence of more and more remote workers. So that's kind of, that's kind of what we do. Awesome. Awesome. And you're, you know, I've, I've been hearing that uh, as well from a lot of Airbnb investors that the 30 day plus, but still kind of short term rentals can be just as lucrative as the Airbnb model, but with significantly less work for the actual, you know, for the investor, which is. Yeah. And I would second that. I think that, um, you know, for us, we were, we had condos in Denver. And again, this was before people were really paying attention to Airbnb or the city or the HOAs were. And so we were making good money on that. But then in 2017, the laws changed in Denver. And so we switched at that point to the medium term rental. So the 30 plus day furnished rentals. And we've been really happy with that model. And some of the advantage to that is that it's less work. But also if you're out of state and you're paying property management for a short term and Airbnb rental, those property management costs can be really, really high and eat up a lot of the money you're going to get. So if you do a medium term rental and property manage it yourself, it's not that hard. And you kind of come out very similar to what you would be at if you did an Airbnb but had outside management on it. Mm, okay. And now you're, you know, making your name in preparing the world or helping the world adapt to the new normal, if you will, of remote work and people, I guess, fleeing some of these larger cities now that they can work from home tech workers specifically is what I imagine. Can you tell us a bit about what you've discovered there and, you know, what you've learned and how you're helping us, you know, the rest of us get adapted to this new situation? Sure. I mean, I think, again, it's been really interesting to me for a while because a lot of our tenant pool has been people that have remote worked or whatever. And Colorado, honestly, even before COVID was the number one destination for remote workers. So even before COVID hit, we had a large population of people. I I always say to my clients, when you can work from anywhere, you work from Colorado. And I'm sure that's true for a couple of states, but Colorado has just been attractive to remote workers for a long time. So then when March hit and the world kind of turned upside down, I think a lot of people were paying attention to trends as far as how businesses, 
is, would adapt to that and what that looks like. And so I've been paying attention to that. And we started to see a lot of our clients were coming from the coasts and moving in with the thought that eventually they're going to move to Colorado. They're just going to see how the next year works. And then in October, I heard an art, a, a news story on NPR about how 14 to 23 million Americans are looking to move now because of remote work. And so with that, I decided to write a book about my experience and the experience of my clients. So that's going to be called American Nomads, renting to remote workers. But just kind of looking at those trends. And the reason why it's called American Nomads is because in the past, it's been digital nomads that worked internationally that went abroad. And, you know, you were seeing a lot of people do it in China, in Thailand and Colombia and other places. But I think because of what's happening with COVID and the different strains and stuff, you're seeing a lot of movement that it will be within the United States. Nice. And, you know, for the listeners out there, at the time this interview goes live, that book is available on Amazon. We're timing that so that, you know, the, the book is out there if you want to learn more. Now, one of the things that really strikes me here about, especially about our conversation so far is you talk about medium, furnished medium term rentals. Whereas from my perspective, if I was, uh, say, a tech employee, you know, leaving the Bay Area, trying to find a new place to live and work remotely, I don't know that I'd be looking for a, a furnished rental. I mean, yet being a bit of a nomad is kind of fun. But at the end of the day, I think most people actually like having a sense of normalcy and, you know, a, b- a bit of a routine and a place they live and maybe own. Are you finding that that's not true? Like a lot of these folks want the, the furnished, you know, short, medium term rental and they want to kind of bounce around from, I don't know, Denver to Miami to, you know, I don't know, wherever else. Or Yeah, you usually see people do it for about six months to a year if they're just straight remote workers, the, the American nomads that I was talking about. You see that where they might come in, they know that they don't want to be in a situation again where they're outpriced and they can't, you know, if they're coming out of San Francisco, right? So you're seeing a lot of movement out of San Francisco, which I think everybody's heard about at this point. And so they're going places like Denver, Boise, Salt Lake, Austin. Austin really is the number one. And then Denver is probably number two for some of that movement. And so I think they are trying out a few cities. The other thing that you see sometimes is when people leave and they move into a new community, what they want is they want to explore the city before they invest in one neighborhood. Um, I know in Colorado, at least in Denver, there's confusion. There's a particular area where people will label it Cherry Creek, which is a very kind of Tony. It's, it's the nice part of Denver and people talk about that. But then the reality is when you go to that location, it might have a Cherry Creek address, but it's actually, there's confusion about what it actually is. It's actually not depending on where you land, it's not the really nice part. And so you would see people move into cities and understand what the city looks like and then make a purchase. So we do see that quite a bit. Or alternately, we see those people moving around for six months to a year. And that's typically, you know, people in their mid 20s to mid 30s, no kids. So it's either going to be singles or um, couples that are doing it. We actually do see quite a bit of that. Hmm, Interesting. So what are some features of, you know, the property or amenities, location, you know, whatever that uh, these types of folks typically look for? Sure. So I actually think a parking space is really important. Even if you live in a community 
where parking is not hard to find. Sometimes your tenant pool is moving out of a place where parking is very hard to find, like New York or San Francisco. So even if you can tell them, hey, street parking is no issue, they might have a little bit of an issue having buy-in with that or grasp, like really believing that. And so I think having at least one, not at least one, just having one dedicated parking space is what you need because typically they will come in with a car or they want that. I don't think you need two. I think if you have two, you should use the other one to rent out to someone else. Um, But if you have one, definitely offer that. I think being pet friendly is a big deal because I think a lot of these nomads, if they don't have kids, they probably have a fur baby that they're very attached to. And so if you can make your place friendly to that, I think people like that. And then also, you know, this isn't true for everyone, but I would say smaller spaces do better because you are talking about singles or couples and not having yard maintenance. A lot of them don't really, you know, they want outdoor space. So they want a nice balcony or they want access to great parks, but they actually don't want the issue of trying to maintain a yard. And as a landlord, that also creates a lot of issues where you're trying to figure out like, am I going to pay for someone to come over there and take care of the yard? Or is it going to be their responsibility and whatnot? And so for this tenant pool, I would say not having a yard is useful. And then finally, privacy. So if these people are going to work from home, you need to make sure that there's some dedicated space where, you know, if it's, if it's a one bedroom, at least have a screen up where they can put, you know, a desk and a chair. Actually, you should be providing a desk and chair for them, but some way for them to have privacy, you know, if their spouse is there or some kind of separation from the rest of um, the unit, or we're seeing kind of an emergence of two and three bedroom condos, which in the past three bedroom condos hadn't been as attractive, but now they're becoming more attractive because you have your bedroom or if it's two roommates, each of them get a room and then there's an office. Yeah, that's, that's pretty handy. Another thing I wonder about is technology and more specifically, you know, connectivity, because I think about, you know, my home internet, I pay for the most expensive package available and it still sucks. And I have no other option, but Comcast, sorry, Comcast, you're awful. But, you know, for the investor out there, like, how do you address that in your due diligence? Because, you know, if you get a call from a a tenant, you know, a bit down the road and they're like, man, the, the internet here is awful. You know, can you do something about it? And I figure most of the time there are probably no other options. So, I guess, how do you handle that situation? One, you're speaking my language with trashing Comcast, my least favorite company on earth. This is what happens when you have monopolies. It doesn't go well. But uh, same thing, you know, we pay for the highest package. I feel like that's something you kind of owe your tenants is to make sure that they can try, they can have success to the extent that you can offer it to them. I think that again, you know, it's the number one concern of everyone coming in for us. Luckily, we live in areas where you can get Wi-Fi if you pay for it, you know, but we consider that an obligation or a responsibility that we have to our tenants. And also just as a landlord, I don't want to deal with taking calls like that all the time. So I just upfront pay those costs and do everything I can. But I agree with you. It's not, it's not always an option. Sometimes Comcast is the only game in town and the Wi-Fi is only so good. And with something like that, I would just explain it to your tenants up front, set expectations. But I do think that will be a real issue if you're trying to rent out to remote workers and you don't have strong Wi-Fi. Yeah, one of those uh, market realities that's kind of, I guess, uh, I guess, out of your control. Now, another thing I wonder is there's always some, you know, unexpected thing that we might not think about from the outside till we get into uh, any particular investing strategy. 
looking from the outside in, what do you think is, is like maybe the biggest thing that most people who haven't done it are missing in tailoring to you know remote workers? You know, I think that what I see from my clients is a little bit of um, reluctance to believe that there's actually a market out there for that. And, you know, we'll see it. I think, I think people will be more comfortable with it in the future because everybody's paying attention to these remote work trends or aware of the fact that a lot more people are working remotely than they were in the past. But, you know, we've never had issues filling this tenant pool. If it wasn't someone, you know, just wanting to try out Colorado or wanting to live in a city before they invest in it. We also had just a heavy pool of people that were thinking about getting divorced, but they didn't want to make that call yet. So they would live separately or um, so, you know, this tenant pool in my mind has always existed and now it's just even going to be larger. And so I think that's been hard for people to believe, you know, they don't know how to market to these people or where to find them either. Um, and then the other thing that I think is a pleasant surprise, it was a pleasant surprise for us, was that these medium term rentals, these American nomads, they pay um, and they they pay an elevated rate because they're paying for this furnished rental. They don't pay as much as an Airbnb or so. Somebody that pay comes in for four days is going to pay more than the person that comes in for 60 days. But the person that comes in for 60 days is going to pay more than the person that comes in for a year. And I think what's been a pleasant surprise for us is that people come in, they think they're going to stay for 60 days, but then they get really comfortable and they end up staying for a year, but they pay at that elevated rate. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm glad that uh, topic came up, finding price points or what, you know, what the right price point is. And okay, when you have a, a proper Airbnb, you know, there are tools like AirDNA that can tell you the appropriate rates and you can kind of do your own surveys and figure that out. And you have a, a true long-term rental where you're renting for a year, you can, there are tools out there as well. But for a medium-term furnished rental, how do you, you know, find that, do that market analysis and set your price points and kind of know what you should be looking for going in? Cause I, you know, that's going to be a critical part of deciding whether a, a particular property is even going to work in the first place, right? Yeah. It is, it's a little bit, the patterns with it are a little bit similar to Airbnb. So, you have market depression from October to March. You're just not pulling in as much. It's about a 33% decrease in rent rates. Uh, it's probably not as severe for the medium-term renter, but you definitely see it drop off a little bit. And then in the summer, it's higher. Again, people just want to live in these communities and stuff when the weather is the best and when they can experience things the most. So you have it higher. But what I usually do is I would look at Rent-A-Meter and AirDNA and kind of split the difference between the two of them and then maybe subtract 10 to 15%. I always like to be conservative in my investments, have a pleasant surprise versus an unpleasant surprise and do it that way. And again, the further you, you know, the further you're marketing out, the higher you can ask for that rent rate. And then as you get closer, you're going to drop the price as you want to fill that person. But typically we've had no issues filling our properties. And obviously in the summer, it's very hot. We have had some turnover in December sometimes, and that is usually where we see the highest vacancy rate, where you would have a week or two of downtime where we're trying to find someone else to fill it in. Hmm. Okay. Now, as with any real estate investment strategy, the biggest question, I think, or one of the biggest questions is, what's the upside? Why is it worth doing all of this, you know, kind of extra work to furnish a rental and, and so on and so forth? 
when you could, you know, the option is always there to go buy a single family or, you know, a multi-unit and get long-term tenants. Why bother addressing this uh, particular market niche? So I think it's a good option. I think riches are in the niches. And I also think that it's people came in, they did long-term investing for a long time. Then they got into Airbnb and short-term rentals. And the reason why they did that is because they wanted the money. It was an elevated amount of money. I think what you saw is that people got a little bit tired of doing it. Airbnb is great money, but it's not free money. You are definitely working for that, right? Like it's a heavy burden of communication, cleaning, if you're handling your own cleaning. Um, But there's a lot of moving parts. And I also feel like with Airbnb, the algorithm can be really aggressive with you, like always prompting you to do stuff. And so these medium term rentals are a way if you had already done that investment to retain your furniture and not have to do a major shift on things, but it's much less work. And so I think people really respond to that because they're getting better rents than they would with a long-term renter, but often they're not having to deal with the issues of a short-term renter. So it's like not that much work, but an elevated rent, which is really nice. And so I think that's attractive to people. Mm, Okay. Now something that, you know, I, I hate to use the term fad, but one of the things that has struck me kind of in this space in the last few years pre-COVID, of course, was the co-working space niche. To me, I don't know, there was obviously demand for it, but I think WeWork had some pretty severe uh, struggles, obviously. I don't know whether that business model generally you know, has weathered COVID very well or not, but in the long run, to me, that didn't really strike me as a, a strong niche to be in. And this Remote work is kind of, it's in that same like ecosystem, I suppose. What are your thoughts about that? How the two kind of interplay with one another? Do they compete with one another? You know, co-working and kind of this remote work. Um, is there a way to leverage that? What are your thoughts about those two strategies put together? No, I think that's a great question. I know before the interview had started, we were talking about people feeling lonely or not lonely mm-hmm. in the remote workspace. So I'm pretty dug in on remote work. I think people won't necessarily want to go back to the office because they've had this fluidity of where they can live and they own their own time more. You know, there's a lot of things that are very attractive about remote work. And so in that way, I believe it's not going to go away. And so I do think there's an opportunity for these properties to continue to be very attractive. But I also acknowledge that a major complaint of people are that they are lonely or they do feel isolated. And so I think if you move to a new city and you don't know anyone, that's going to double down on that isolation. And so that's the piece that I would pay attention to. Um, I think in that way, co-living spaces sort of, or yeah, co-working spaces addresses that. I think co-living spaces actually might address that more. So where you have, you know, large houses where people come and go and they rent out a room versus, you know, renting out the whole property. I would pay attention to those because I think you're seeing that trend has existed in Europe for a long time and it's been very popular. And I think you're seeing it on the coast a little bit. I definitely have some clients that are doing it in Buena Vista, some mountain towns, and then Denver. Denver just passed some laws around it actually this week that are allowing people to do it. So I think when you're talking about remote workers, I think you'll have people that are sort of the medium term rental model, which is what I was talking about, where you just rent a one bedroom with you and your spouse and you check out that area. But I also think those co-living spaces, I would pay attention to them because I think they may emerge on the market because that kind of 
works in both ways. You're not tethered to one location. You can move around, but you also are not lonely. There's other people in the house if that's what's appealing to you. Nice, nice. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Aaron. I got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So it was the first investment we ever made. It was in 2015. We bought a small one-bedroom condo in downtown Denver, and that was in 2015. Obviously, a lot has changed. Um, and so that property, we have a lot of equity in it, and now we're looking at potentially selling it and doing something else with that equity. But I believe in small properties close to cities. I am not one of those people that thinks, that people will never come back to the city. I think, I believe strongly in cities. So it's been a good investment. And yeah. Nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So my worst investment is that I had a studio on uh, the penthouse floor of a condo building in downtown Denver as well. And we sold that. And that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad decision. We were nervous about the HOA and nervous about the fact that they weren't taking care of the building very well. So we thought we might get hit with a really large special assessment. And we had another another unit in that building. So we didn't want to get hit with two assessments. So we got rid of it. Well, I can tell you that assessment has never come and that property has only gotten better. And we were using it for the medium term space and making a ton of money on it. And I think we bought it for 120000 which you couldn't it would be hard to find a parking space for 120,000 <laughs> number right now. So it just makes me sick to my stomach that we sold it. And I think we sold it two years ago. Mm, okay. Well, that's, that's fair. I mean, you're, you're calculating your risk and limiting some of your potential downside. You hung on to one of them. So, you know, it, it makes sense. You know, we're all going to have those times in hindsight where we say, you know, I got out of this particular investment because of, you know, fear or I hedged my bets and, I should actually bet more because it worked out, but. You know, I think it's okay too. I think I meet a lot of people that haven't invested yet and their number one fear is like doing something stupid or, you know, not making the perfect decision. I always tell people, you're not going to make the perfect decision. What you're trying to do is not make a stupid decision. Like you are, it's very hard to analyze down to the cent, right? You're just trying to protect your risk. And, and we made a lot of money off of that condo. We just could have made more. So. Still a bummer, but you made money, so good news. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So actually, right out of college, I worked for a law firm. I was a legal assistant there, and at that time, I was a little bit put out by some of the tasks that I was being asked to do. And at that time I decided to read this book and unfortunately I can't think of the name of the book, but the advice in there, it was about being an assistant. And the advice in that book was basically like, you're not above anything, basically do everything you can to the best of your ability. People will recognize it and you will learn something and then you'll be even more useful to the world. And I <laughs> took that advice to heart and I think it's good advice. I think no one should think that they're above anything. And I think everything that you do you learn a new skill and maybe you learn you hate certain skills and you love other skills. But I think that that was good advice for me because I've never had an attitude or I've never created more work by assigning it to someone else. I just do the work and I, and I, I feel thankful that I had that advice at a young age. Nice. I think that is a uh, great advice and a great mindset. It's one of the things that always 
kind of bugged me in the corporate space or talking to people who have jobs is when they say, you know, so-and-so higher up at the company asked me to do this thing, but I said no, because that's not my job. And like, okay, maybe it's technically not your job, but this person's higher up than you, you know, they're, they need your help, so on and so forth. Like consider what, what it could do for you to go out of your way you know, there's, you can always go too far. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, consider the upside of working a little harder, doing this thing that's a little out of your box and what you could, you know, gain from it in the long run. So Yeah, I think professionally, sometimes people think it's demeaning to do certain tasks or that they'll be looked down upon. And I think if you work in a company where you're going to be looked down upon because you get the job done, that seems like a pretty lame company to me. So I just, I don't subscribe to that at all. So yeah. And if you're going to be looked down upon for getting the job done, then that's going to happen either way. That's probably yeah, probably out of your hands. Totally. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thank you for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, they want to get in touch with you. If they want to find the book, so on and so forth, where can they do that? Sure. So the book is called American Nomads and it is on Amazon. You can also find me on Bigger Pockets, Aaron's Bradland, or our, just our real estate company if you're looking to buy or invest in Denver or Colorado Springs. It is Aaron and James Real Estate. So yeah, thank you so much, Taylor. This was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to you. And obviously we talked for about 30 minutes before this started. So obviously we had a lot to cover. Absolutely. We have used up our entire hour, which is excellent to everybody out there. And it was a great pleasure for me as well. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 